So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside the Mind of Champions, where I select a few of the digital insights from Sporting Edge's library to give you more confidence and skills to attack your job. It would be remiss of me not to mention the epic funeral proceedings in the last week for Queen Elizabeth II. Like millions of people, I sat glued to the TV for hours, watching the incredible history and ceremony executed to perfection. Now, I know the concept of monarchy isn't everyone's preference, but no one can fault the Queen's dedication and selfless service to her role for over 70 years. There's something very reassuring to see selfless stewardship in action. People acting with a long-term view. It's the antidote to many of the corporate leaders and politicians who deceive and manipulate to get into power for their tiny two or three years in the spotlight, which can often come at a cost to their voters or their minions or their followers. Seeing the Queen's crown, orb and scepter lifted from her coffin and handed back to the public display in the Tower of London, both marked the end of an unprecedented era, but also showed how impermanent the grasp on our worldly possessions is, even for the Queen. I spoke at a gala dinner last week at the Law Society about these periods of transition as the current president, Stephanie Boyce, finishes her term. Ultimately, in any of our lives and roles, the only thing that will be left behind is the impact that we've had on those around us. Which is a great reminder for us to be considerate and collaborative rather than solo snipers. So to everyone involved in the Queen's final ceremonies, especially the 10 guys charged with carrying her coffin, a huge well done. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. So back to the podcast. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Jose, who wrote a wonderful five star review on Apple Podcasts, saying that uh, this was for the good and the bad times. Thanks to Jeremy's inspiring guests and his laser focused dissection of the winning mental strategies from different fields. Uh, These were simple and everyday useful pills of information. I felt very motivated and supported through the good and the bad times since the pandemic. I look forward to every week to a new podcast or micro lesson. So it's brilliant to have you on board, Jose. Thank you so much for your review. 
Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to write. And I'm so pleased to hear that it's been part of your motivational toolkit in the last few years, which have been so challenging for so many of us. In fact, one of the reasons I create these episodes is to get the benefit myself rather selfishly. Our business, Sporting Edge, is a really dynamic and challenging place to work. And its growth can add a new level of pace and expectation to me. So these interviews are so cathartic and educational for me to create. So I'm really glad that you feel the same when you're listening. I think high performance is a quest that all the people in our community and this podcast community are striving for. And while many of the building blocks that we hear from our experts are common sense, they're not always common practice. So we need these regular nudges of videos and podcasts and quotes and things to keep us on our toes, to be honest, to keep us motivated, to do the right things on those difficult days. And ultimately, it's when we make those good choices in adversity that they can become habits. And when they become habits, that's when we start getting momentum towards our goals. So these nudges and reminders are so important for all of us. So let's meet today's expert. He's a renowned speaker, coach and sales expert. And he's got so many practical tips to help us to sell our ideas, our products and our services more effectively. Here's a taste of what's to come. Selling is a dirty word with many people. And it's a dirty word with many people because we've all been sold to in a horrible, horrible way where someone has banged on about their product and you just think, shut up, you love your product more than you love me. And so what you are and what you do, it's correct, but I don't care. What I really want to hear is what you cause. Networking, it's called network. It's not called net mess about. It is work and it does take a bit of time. Top tips for a great proposal are this. Number one, confirmation, not exploration. Well, that's the voice of Andy Bounds. And in essence, he helps companies to sell more and communicate better. He's been awarded Britain's Sales Trainer of the Year and described by AstraZeneca's Global Communication Director as a genius whose advice can't be ignored. So that's a pretty big claim. Andy's insights and passions stem from the fact that his mother is blind and this has given him a unique perspective and a lifetime's experience on communicating from somebody else's point of view. So that's a really interesting and important skill to master. Now he's written three books that have all been international bestsellers and he's worked with loads of global brands with some pretty stellar results and as ever I'll add all the links to his books and website in the show notes. Now, I spent a fascinating morning interviewing Andy for our members platform, which showcases all of his insights. But for today, I've selected a few which I know will resonate with you. So let's follow the arc of meeting a prospective client for the first time through to pitching and then negotiating, closing the deal and then considering the impact that we have. Let's kick off as I ask Andy about some practical networking skills, especially for people who can't stand the idea of walking into a crowded room of strangers at some kind of business function and finding the way to get into the conversation and introductions. So here's what he had to say. Networking, it's called network. It's not called net mess about. It is work and it does take a bit of time. 
And there's two main things you need to know with networking. Number one, who to speak to, and number two, what to say to them. So you want to network with the right people and say the right stuff. Now, if you're someone who thinks going to events and working a room is not your thing, that's fine. Networking doesn't mean you have to do that. There are other ways you can speak to the right people and say the right thing. Um, so the first thing to think about is who do you want to speak to? So who are the people you want to be networking with? So, and then you think, and where do they hang out? Do I need to go to a networking event or can I find them on LinkedIn? Or um, so let's say you want to speak to people who are senior partners in law firms in London. Well, yeah, go to a senior London lawyer networking thing or just target them individually on LinkedIn. Either's fine. So you don't have to do something you hate. That's the thing. It's like when you're working with people and they want to generate new leads and they think need to cold call. No, you don't. You just can do anything that results in a meeting with a decision maker. So once you've decided who you want to speak to and where you find them, it's then a question of thinking, what do you say when you get in front of them? And almost always, the most important thing to do is to say something they find interesting. So if I, as happened the other day, I want to speak to someone on LinkedIn and they did a post. Let's say they posted something recently lockdown was better. They'd obviously had a bad weekend and fed up with talking to the friends. Lockdown was better and they posted that. Then what you can do is you can reach out to them and say, I read your post, lockdown was better and I've got a couple of questions for you. So that's great networking, right? Because you found something that they are bound to be interested in. Why does anybody post anything on LinkedIn? Because they want someone to care. So I said, I read it and I liked it and I've got a question and they go, what's the question? And all of a sudden we started the networking. So the two things are, number one, who do you want and find out where they hang out? And then number two, what can you say? And you want to make sure you say something that's interesting to them. There are a few great options there in terms of face-to-face -face networking opportunities with your target community or picking up the conversation from the interest point of your target contact online. I have to say, I get so frustrated on LinkedIn where people say, hi, Jeremy, I want to grow my network. Can we connect? That's just a one-sided deal. Or worse, if they find a sneaky way to connect and then 30 seconds later they're spamming me about their services that have no relevance to me at all. So that's my LinkedIn rant over. Apologies. If you do want to connect on LinkedIn, that's great. Just say, I listen to the podcast and I'd love to connect. Don't try and flog me any double glazing or new office telephone or... Uh, I don't know, NFTs or whatever the latest is. So that's not going to work. You'll be binned if you do that. So uh, yeah, keep it to a nice intro. Andy's next insight gives us some pretty clear advice about what to do when we've wormed our way into that semicircle of strangers that are nibbling canapes and sipping nervously on their shabli. There's a lull in the conversation and stranger number three looks across at you with a quick glance down at your name badge and says, so, what do you do? So an elevator pitch is a really important thing to create and to practice and to make sure it's really good. What it is, is you're in an elevator or it's a networking event and someone says, what do you do? And you've got 10 seconds till you get out at the next floor to say what it is. Another way to describe an elevator pitch is first impression. So if I say, what do you do? If your first impression, if your elevator pitch is boring, I'm trying to get out of the elevator because I'm bored. 
Now, most elevator pitches are quite boring because they focus on what we are or what we do. So if I go to a networking event, I say to someone, what do you do? Person one will say what they are. I am a tax accountant. And my only response to that is, oh, are you? Then I go to person number two and they tell me what they do. What do you do? They go, well, I prepare tax returns for my clients. <laughs> and so what you are and what you do, it's correct, but I don't care. What I really want to hear is what you cause. And what I mean by cause is why your client's better off after you've done your work, what I call the afters, why they're better off afterwards. So I speak to person number three and I almost burst into tears and hug them because I say, what do you do? And they say, I help my clients pay less tax than they thought they had to. And I go, oh, finally. I go, how do you do that? Bet you're busy. And so when you do your elevator pitch, the thing to remember is your job title, nobody cares. Your main deliverable, nobody cares. The afters you cause, everybody cares. Now, sometimes people say, oh, if I just say, um, I help my clients pay less tax than they thought they had to, it sounds a bit like spam. Sounds like verbal spam, I don't like it. In that case, use your job title and then say which basically means, and then you do the afters. So you might say, I'm a tax accountant, which basically means I help my clients pay less tax than they thought they had to. And that's how to do an elevator pitch. Isn't it amazing how a slight tweak in our wording can make the shift from functional to fantastic? So I'd be very happy if you want to pause the podcast for a second and grab a pen. Write down your role and the impact that you have. It's a really powerful approach. So if we move the timeline on further, after we've transfixed everyone in the networking room with our new elevator pitch, it's now time to retreat home with a stash of business cards. We now need to work out how to get their attention. Some of them may have been so intrigued by your elevator pitch that they want to call you immediately with a request or a project. But more realistically, they just like the idea of meeting you and they want to stay in contact and be on your mailing list. Now, considering that everyone receives over 100 emails a day, how do we get ours to catch their eye? As ever, Andy had some great advice with the very first thing that they see, the title. And this relates to our internal emails for our own stakeholders, as well as our marketing emails to prospective clients. So email titles are absolutely critical to getting an email opened. We all know this is the first thing we look at when you, well, you look at the sender's name and then you look at the email title and based on those two things, you may or may not open the email. We all know this. But for some reason, when people send email titles, they are almost always dire. For example, FYI. I mean, have you ever leapt to e open an email called FYI? I mean, I just think it stands for fill your inbox. Or um, what other titles do we get? Um, update. There's another one, update. I mean, if you get invited to a meeting called update, you never wake up thinking, it's today, because it just sounds so boring. So if you want to write an email that gets opened, remember the golden rule, it has to be engaging. And there are two basic ways to engage in an email title. Number one, you talk about an engaging word, so you include an engaging word in there. So if I want to send an email to someone and it's called um, meeting date, because I want to know what the date of the meeting is, if I call it meeting date, it's accurate, but it's dull, it's not engaging, nobody will open it. But engaging words are things like, quick or favor or advice or something that engages. So I could send an email and it's called meeting date dash a quick question dot dot dot. 
So that all goes in the subject line, meeting date dash a quick question dot dot dot. Now, if my reader gets that email, their inbox is full of loads of stuff called FYI and updates and like a shining beacon, you've got quick question dot dot dot. So they're bound to open it. Or I might go meeting date dash some advice question mark. And you see that thing, oh, what advice does Andy want? Or meeting uh, date dash a favor. I'm a nice guy, I'll do Andy a favor. My favorite one of all, meeting date dash good news. And people can't help but open it. And you go, good news, everything's ready for the meeting. The only one problem, I don't know when it is. And then of course you can go into asking for the meeting date. So there are two things you need, um, or two ways to be engaging. One of them is using engaging word. And the other one, when it's appropriate and it isn't always, change the title so it's a benefit to the reader. Now this is one you don't use very often because it feels a bit like spam, but when it's appropriate, it's good. So best example of this, there's a sales director asked me to help him with an email of his and he'd called it figures. And guess what? He'd sent the email called figures and no one read it because it sounds boring. So what happened was I said, can you do figures dash a quick question or figures, um, you know, some advice. And he goes, no, they hate me. They're not going to open it because it's called figures. And I said, okay, so what's the benefit to them of this email? And he said, well, they'll, I'll know their figures. And I go, why is that a benefit? He goes, well, I'll put their figures into the machine. And I said, yeah, but why is that a benefit? He goes, well, that will chuck out the commission payments. I went, oh. So what we did is we rewrote the email title and this time he had almost an instant response from everyone because his new email was called, making sure you get paid this month. And for some reason that seemed to work. So 95% of the time just use an engaging word, quick, update, whatever it might be. But then when you have a look at the other thing, you might want to change the whole title if it's appropriate. Yes, boring figures versus our bonus payment. I can see how that would be a seismic shift in attention grabbing. But it's so subtle again in the language. And I think it's so easy for us to all get trapped in our own head, thinking about our products, thinking about you know, the features and our services, and we forget to rotate our communication so that it intrigues the recipient. Finding out what our client's biggest priorities and motivations are is a fundamental part of being able to offer the right service, but we're sometimes afraid to ask. So I quizzed Andy for his advice. So how do we understand the buyer's motivation? There are two ways. You either ask them to find out what it is, um, or you tell them what it might be. And the reason I talk about both these is if you ask people what's going on inside their head, you find out what they want, but you might not find out what they need. You all right? So I need hair. You can tell. I don't have a great deal of hair. So if a wig salesperson came in this room, they would think, all oh, right, this is an easy sell for me, but I don't want hair. All right? Hair doesn't like me and I don't like hair. So what people want and what they need is totally different. So what you do is you ask people to find out what they want, and I'll give you a couple of questions in a minute. But also, you might want to tell them some things you've seen some of their peers are doing to ask if they would find that helpful too, so you can open their eyes to new stuff. So for example, one of the greatest questions ever, if you want to find someone's priorities, are what are your main priorities? I know, genius, if you want to write that down, find out their priorities, say what are your main priorities, and then comes the world's best question. It's only got three words in it. This is my favorite communication tip of all. Tell me more, world's best question. So if you say to someone, what's your main priority? And they say, oh, we need to export into Belgium. You go, oh really, why Belgium? Tell me more about that. Well, blah, 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 blah. 
And the first answer people give, you can never do a great deal with. But when you say, tell me more, then it throws out the real stuff. And you throw the other question with, when do you want to get there? How are you planning to get there? Um, who are you planning to speak to when you get there? Why are you doing Belgium? And it takes maybe five, 10 minutes, but I now know Belgium, why Belgium, when Belgium, how Belgium. And then I can say, right, so we got Belgium. Is there anything else you're interested in? And then we draw out other stuff as well. So what I would find if you want to find someone's priorities, ask them, say, tell me more a lot. But then when it's appropriate, say something like this. Other people I've spoken to in your position have also mentioned they're interested in X and Y. Might either of those be useful to you as well? If they say yes, tell me more, why is that? And then we're off again. I really like how this mirrors the coaching approach. Often what people say is their instinctive answer is bland or superficial. So it's only when we probe under that a little bit that we uncover the richness, the emotion, the urgency or the backstory that's so important to finding out more. And this is the same. We can't provide a laser focused solution for our clients unless we can really zero in on their biggest pain point. And interestingly, to Andy's point, sometimes they don't even know what it is for themselves. So these extra exploratory questions allow us to get that sense check. For example, I often get asked to support organisations when they're adopting a new strategy or a new technology. They may have a big respected strategy consultancy in and the business case is clear. What might present itself as a reluctance or a rejection of a new software system is actually more to do with fear and being embarrassed in front of their peers. So they'd rather stick with the old system that they're comfortable with. So being able to share that concern in a safe space and to get people excited about learning and experimenting and floundering forward with this new piece of kit and exploring what the new technology can bring to them as saving cost or saving time or making things more efficient is really the key before we jump into that mechanical training. And this is a very common challenge. Andy's technique of sharing what other clients have wrestled with and how they've solved similar problems can also spark fresh perspectives in our clients to help them to take the next step. So that next step could be moving from LinkedIn to a live demo or from the lawyer's lunch to a meeting of the key stakeholders in that company. Now it's time to move from ideas and possibilities to writing them down in a way that illustrates what you actually will do and what it actually will cost. This is another potential derailing point where the sales cycle can go offline. So I knew Andy would have a golden formula for proposal writing and I wasn't wrong. So proposals, the golden rule with proposals is confirmation, not exploration. In other words, your proposal should be a written confirmation of what you've already agreed verbally. You should never explore anything new in a proposal. So when the customer looks at your proposal, they should go, yeah, we've agreed that, we've agreed that, we've agreed that, we've agreed that, and that, and that, yeah. So they look at it, and if anything, it's almost boring. I know all this. But most proposals don't do that. Most proposals, they have a lot of exploration in there. So for example, they say, um, here's what the uh, project might look like. And they do a timeline that the customer's never seen before. And the customer might not like that. 
Or the biggest sin of all, they put the price in there and the customer's never heard the price before. So the first, thing they, first time they see the price is on an inanimate bit of paper where we aren't there to handle the discussion. And so they go, 50,000 pounds. Well, you didn't mention that in Starbucks and then you get ghosted. So what you wanna do is agree everything before you write the proposal. So you wanna agree what they're buying, how valuable it is, what price they're gonna pay, what the timeline of the project's gonna be, who the main decision makers are gonna be, what the key milestones are gonna be, the next steps and all that stuff. Agree it all verbally and then you put it in writing. The other thing to agree before you send a proposal is when you're gonna have the follow-up call. So let's say I'm talking to you right now and we've agreed everything. I say the next two steps are this. I'll put everything in writing, we've just agreed. There'll be no surprises, it'll just be what we just said. If I get that to you today, when will be a good time for us to have a quick 10 minutes debrief on it tomorrow? If you can't do tomorrow, when can you do? What I don't like to do is send a proposal for it just to sort of rest around in the ether. That doesn't benefit either of us. So before I send the proposal, I agree everything that's going in it and I agree the time of the follow-up call, which means there's no surprises and I don't get ghosted. My proposal hit rate is 94%. I'm a bit annoyed about the 6% to be honest, but stuff happened, right? But 94%'s not bad, and they're the two things I do every time. I think we'd all love to boast a 94% conversion rate, wouldn't we? Well, by following these key steps, maybe we can close the gap. I really like the point about getting all the clarity and agreement around the deliverables and the fees covered off in the call or the meeting rather than dropping it silently through by email only for it to clang on the desk of our clients and shock them by either the complexity of what we send or the price. Again, our clients are really busy, so a simple summary that they can share and get agreement round is going to be far better than writing war and peace with 42 complicated possible solutions. That's much too heavy lifting for them, and they're much more likely to drop it or find someone else who can provide a more simple solution. The next stage is to consider that follow-up call, which Andy suggested we should pre-arrange in the diary before the proposal goes in. But now we have to meet either online or face-to-face. -face. Will they agree in full to our proposal or have they got a counter-offer that kicks off a negotiation? I couldn't leave Andy without tapping into his ideas around negotiation. So here it is. So a couple of things with negotiation. First one, you want to aim for a win-win, not a lose-lose. You don't want to compromise. You want everyone delighted, not everyone a bit miffed. So we want something that is a win-win. And the way I look at this is, if you get it a win-win, I'll keep trying and they'll keep buying. You know, everyone's happy. Um, so it could be negotiation about the level of price. It could be negotiation about uh, deliverables and about timings and SLAs and all that sort of stuff. And the way to think about it is when you prepare for a negotiation, I always prepare it from both my side and their side. So I think from my side, what's my ideal outcome? What's my next best outcome? What are my deal breakers? And what am I happy to trade? And then I think the same thing from their point of view, what's their ideal outcome? What's their next best thing? What are their deal breakers? And what are they prepared to trade? So I almost prepare a two column table. What do I think? What do they think? And I do this before I go into the negotiation. Because if I'm not careful, I'll go in thinking, you want to get as many deliverables from me as possible for the cheapest possible price. No, of course they don't. 
That's not what they want. But if I go in thinking that and they think you want to minimize deliverables and maximize your price, it goes at loggerheads. So I find the best thing to do is aim for win-win and then do my two column table, what will be a win for both of us. And that helps me prepare it. What I then do is then I go into the negotiation and I use words to show how joint it is to start with. So I say something like, I've been looking forward to our discussion. My aim for it is to find something that we both think is fair. Is that what you think? So you hear how joint this is, it's our discussion, what we both think is fair. Is that what you think? It's really hard for somebody to say, no, I want to be unfair. And now we've started off fair. And so I can then say, so please, can you help me understand what do you want from this? What will be a good outcome for you? And very often when you lead this way, you find that actually what they want is compatible with what you want anyway. Happy days. If it's not, well, then you can then start adjusting accordingly. But that's my preferred way to negotiate. There are probably loads of gurus who'll teach you ball-breaking strategies to drain the last dollar out of the sale with a poker face. But I don't think that really works long term for these relationships with clients. It's certainly not my style. And I really valued Andy's perspective of setting out in the meeting that you're both looking for a fair and equitable partnership in this. One that balances the motivation of the seller and the benefits that the client's going to receive. As we wrap up this episode, which has been a masterclass in selling, I thought I'd share this belter from Andy, which I think summarises his whole philosophy. Selling is a dirty word with many people. And it's a dirty word with many people because we've all been sold to in a horrible, horrible way where someone has banged on about their product and you just think, shut up, you love your product more than you love me, I don't care, leave me alone. But there's many mistakes people are making if they bang on about the product. But the most important one is this, they aren't talking about the thing we care about. Nobody cares about the product they buy, nobody. Nobody cares about the service they buy, nobody cares about the proposition, nobody cares about anything they buy all they care about is why they're better off after it, all right? So nobody wants an attorney, but after hiring her, they're hoping they don't go to jail. So it's not the attorney I want, it's no jail time, yeah? When someone hires a tax specialist, they're not looking for someone to be a tax specialist and prepare tax returns and stuff. What we want is someone who can help us reduce our tax bill. Like, hopefully legally, or we might need the attorney again. So when I describe myself, I don't describe myself by what I do, my thing. I don't say I am a keynote speaker or a consultant because people will just say, between jobs, are you? But instead, I talk about what happens after me. So I might say I help companies sell more than they thought they could. Or over the past couple of years, I was saying I help companies sell more in a lockdown when they can't meet customers face to face anymore. And no one says between jobs are you when you say that. So what I would urge anyone to do is to think about their product or their service and ask, why are people better off after us? Do they make more money? Do they save time? Do they look good to the boss? Can they get promoted? Does it reduce the risk? Does it make them feel good, look good? What is it? Because that is what they're buying. So when we speak to them, we don't want to talk about our product. Instead, we want to ask where people want to be after it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I go in search of these experts to pick their brains for my own personal use as much as for our business to use in our products and services for our clients. And on meeting Andy, I realised that our website has far too many features on. Phrases like, 
There are thousands of videos, hundreds of experts, a powerful search engine, 90 business themes in our digital platform. And actually, none of those are of interest to you, are they? So that's why I'm going to take Andy's advice for our own business in the coming weeks. And we're going to revamp our approach using this afters method. Now, I know when I think about it, that it's our clients being left inspired and confident with practical tools that makes them book me for more events and that our members have immediate solutions in the flow of work to their personal and team challenges. That's why they choose our digital platform ahead of anyone else. So for someone who's passionate about their business but cringes at the thought of pushy selling, creating this episode has really helped me and I hope you found it really helpful too. So thanks for listening, subscribing and sharing the show. Now go and use LinkedIn like a demon and hang around in those lifts to practice your elevator pitch. Good luck and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.